The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We ended at the bottom of page 94. Just uh, a 194. quick... 194, right. Just a recap. We had I had suggested to you that one of the things that is in the mind of Yeshua as we come into these six antitheses where he says, I, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is the discussion in amongst the rabbis, at least the early rabbis that we can tell, of the evaluation of the commandments. Some were considered light and some were considered heavy. And we looked at those and the various reasons that uh, some of the rabbis gave for which were heavy and which were light. And we came to the conclusion that Yeshua considered those to be heavy that, were, that, that required the most self-sacrifice. And uh, not like some of his contemporaries who considered the heavy commandments to be those that carried the heaviest penalty. So, for instance, as an example, murder would have been considered a heavy commandment by, uh, by many. Now, as I've said before, I think most of us are not often tempted to murder somebody. I mean, gen- genuinely, sometimes we mm, think we'd like to wring somebody's neck. But, I mean, figuratively speaking. But we, we, we don't really wake up in the morning having to, uh, you know, put down the urge to go, you know, across the street and blow our neighbor away or something. That's, that's not something that we deal with on a daily basis. It isn't a great sacrifice on our part to obey that commandment for most of us. However, to hate somebody or to keep from hating somebody, to love someone that's, that's hard to love, to forgive somebody or those kinds of things, not to allow hatred to come into our hearts is something that requires real diligence and self-sacrifice. So for Yeshua, one of the things that I'm suggesting is that he is saying, let's, let's consider what really are the heavy commandments, the weighty commandments. For instance, he would have considered honoring father and mother a weighty commandment, right? Well, that's because sometimes it's difficult to honor our parents, especially when we're growing up and our parents tell us uh, to do something we don't want to do or our parents tell us we cannot do something that we desperately want to do. So with that in mind, we realize that Yeshua is looking at, at the commandments from that perspective. We also saw that his... His basic halakhic rule when it came to deciding if you had conflicting commandments, how would you know which one to choose? If there were two commandments that you couldn't keep them both for, in a given situation, how would you choose? And it seems as though one of the uh, guiding principles for Yeshua was which commandment best exemplifies loving God and loving neighbor. And if there's if there is a, a tie between those, you choose loving your neighbor as the halakhic rule. You choose the commandment that best will help you express genuine love for your fellow man. So, with that in mind, at the bottom of page 194, with this before us then, it is, it is possible to interpret Yeshua's teaching as addressing the issue of commandment evaluation. The Pharisees had chosen to do the light commandments those which required the least amount of effort to fulfill, 
while they were constantly neglecting and thus breaking the weightier ones, those which required a greater sacrifice to fulfill. In stating at the opening that each and every commandment, regardless of its valuation, was important to live righteously, Yeshua sets the stage for his antitheses. But he does it in a most intriguing way. He states a law which all would agree was valued as weighty, introduced by, you have heard it said, and then shows that the inward, heart attitude is just as weighty a commandment, introduced by, but I say to you, or something similar. At least that's what I'm suggesting to you as we read these. Okay? So here's the first one. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now clearly, nobody would have uh, disagreed with him on this one. Everybody would have said, yeah, of course. Don't the Ten Commandments, don't the Ten Words tell us you shall not murder? So, uh, the sixth word which prohibited murder, he quotes directly, uh, Matthew quotes directly from the Septuagint. Uh, to the quote of the sixth word is added the phrase, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, why does he add that? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. It, it, even though it finds no direct parallel from the Tanakh or even from the rabbinic literature, it surely summarizes the various points of texts like Exodus 21-12 uh, and Leviticus 21 and so, or 24. And what do these texts tell us? That in order for someone to be executed for murder, there must be two or three witnesses, and it must be tried before uh, a recognized court. Now, granted, before Israel was constituted as a nation in her land, there was the uh, the rule of the uh, near of kin who could uh, avenge the death of a family member, right? Okay, so that, that was kind of uh, a little bit like what we had out west before the courts were set up. Um, justice was sometimes meted out at the end of a rope or at the end of a six-gun. Uh, that's the way the society ran. But once there were circuit judges, uh, you couldn't take... You couldn't take justice in your own hands. You had to uh, let the court decide. And the same thing, of course, was true as far as the Torah was concerned. Uh, someone who had murdered someone, the only way he could be uh, lawfully executed was through uh, due process at a court. So whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. And that's the point of that phrase. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, one thing that we, one thing that we discover in, these, uh, in this Sermon on the Mount and these words of our Master is he definitely is speaking like a prophet. You know, the prophets would put things in a way that would catch your attention. They would say it in a way or they would do it in such a way that everybody would shake their head and go, what in the world? And Yeshua is really not mincing any words here. Now, one of the first things, and I, I, I didn't speak about this or write about this in the notes, what does he mean by brother? You know, this is the same issue that we come up with when we're asking about uh, uh, what, is, what does he mean when he says, love your enemy, who is your enemy, or who is your neighbor, right? I know that generally speaking, a lot of modern commentators have have said that that neighbor is very broad. It's anyone within your vicinity. It's it's whomever. 
but I, I just don't think that's the case. Uh, more often than not, when we have the word brother in the apostolic scriptures, it means someone within your believing community. More often than not. Sometimes not. I think here we should expand it slightly because, remember, at this point in time, the, the believing synagogues had not separated from the synagogues which had rejected Yeshua. In fact, at this early stage of Yeshua's uh, teaching, I would venture to say that there was a clear mixture of those who were disciples of Yeshua and those who thought Yeshua was a, maybe was a fraud or something. And they, they I think, many times would be in, in one synagogue. We know that in various synagogues, and uh, as far as we can tell from the rabbinic literature, there were those who held different viewpoints. So what I'm saying is that uh, we don't have a clear differentiation here. People that want to say, well, brother means church. We don't have a church yet. We have synagogues. We have, we have a, a, a Jewish community that has various sects. But we don't have a separate church at this point. There's no such thing. Nobody would have said, let's go to church tomorrow. Everybody who was a follower of Yeshua were members of a Jewish community over Gentiles who had attached themselves as God-fearers to a Jewish community, to the Jewish community, and were uh, uh, probably very accustomed to being at the temple and to being in the synagogues. That was the only thing in town. There was one show in town, so to speak, that worshipped the God of Israel. That was it. So when, when we have the word brother here, it probably means someone in your immediate community. I think as we go along, we'll see that there are times when there are outsiders that we have to deal with and some different language is used. So when he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry at his brother. Now, uh, meaning, I'm taking that to mean a, a somebody within your community. Someone. Now, wh- how would that figure for us? I don't think we could limit it just to a given congregation or a community as, as narrowly defined as that. I think we do uh, have to understand that the apostles widened that, those boundaries eventually to, to believers in Yeshua. Okay? Now, that presents a dilemma for us because pretty much everybody uh, who has any inkling towards Christianity or any kind of Christianity would, would consider themselves a believer. So now all of a sudden you are uh, put into the mixture of people who have an entirely different viewpoint of justice, of, uh, of, of righteousness and unrighteousness and so forth. So uh, how we can draw the, the line of who is brother and who is not may be very difficult. But I think we would have to say that in our day and age this would involve those who were true, genuine believers. Even if they disagreed with us on our theology. If they are true, genuine believers, we have to be careful about our approach to them, and we have to we have to hold them with a, a, a high regard as part of our community, our larger, wider community. So now Yeshua is making his uh, comparison to murder, which is considered a heavy commandment. And he's comparing it with angry, something that could not have even been punished by the earthly tribunal, right? You can't take somebody to court in the first century, in the Jewish court, and say, I want you to punish him, he's angry with me. What would the court have said? No, they, they probably would have asked, what did he do? And if, if you say, well, he didn't do anything, I, he, I just know he's angry at me, then they would tell him to go away. Because there's no, 
penalty for that, right? In other words, how could the court even determine if that was true? It seems obvious that Yeshua's words are construed in a three-tiered progression. Now, I've read numbers of commentators, and some say yes, some say no on this, but I think this seems obvious to me. Anger, when unchecked, proceeds to insult. You good for nothing. And unrestrained insult proceeds to slander. You fool. Likewise, the severity of the offense matches the increasingly powerful courts. The first is merely the court, literally the judgment, the same that we had in verse 21. Someone who murders is liable to the court. That's maybe a very general. In the first century, you could have a bona fide court at the lowest level by simply taking any three males and putting them together. Now, they could only do certain things, but for instance, if you were serving uh, your wife a bill of divorcement, you could do so if you had three adult males witnessing. They formed what is known as a bait dean or a house of judgment as proof that you did what you were required to do. Now, when it came to other kinds of things, there had to be recognized judges in at least three. So, this first court is the judgment. Next is the Supreme Court, literally Sanhedrin. And finally, hellfire, literally the fire of Gehenna, or Gehinnom in the Hebrew or Aramaic. Yeshua is showing the progression of anger, which begins inwardly, which, but if allowed to remain and grow, evidences outward destructive behavior. Indeed, this is why it is linked with murder. In Genesis 4-5, we learn that Cain became, quote, very angry, which eventually led to the crime of murder against his brother, right? Thus, what might be considered a light commandment, you shall not hate your fellow man, literally your brother, in your heart, must be rather understood as a weighty one, because left to grow, the possibility is ripe that it will proceed to a whole garden of sins, including murder. Yes. The question is being asked about how uh, was there the emphasis of the need to make things right with one's brother before or before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur um, and so forth. Was this a time of reckoning in the in the as far as we know from the rabbinic literature? It was absolutely yes. The, the interesting thing, though, from a Hebrew or Jewish perspective, is that motives cannot be judged, attitudes cannot be judged. Only deeds can be judged. Okay, so it and we talked about this uh, last week. It it sometimes is is more uh, damaging to go to somebody they don't even know that you have held ill feelings against them. They don't even know, and you go to them and say, "I just want you to know I have hated you with a holy hatred for the last ten years." You didn't do anything. You didn't talk behind their back. You didn't uh, uh, gossip. You didn't do those kinds of things. But deep down inside, you had this hatred. Well, what good is it to go and tell the person that? Rather, you should repent of it, ask God to forgive you of it, and ask God to give you a heart to love that person. You know, and that can, that can be something that is done without having to, because uh, we all, uh, you probably have all had that experience where somebody has come to you and said, you know, X amount of years ago you hurt me, and I've held it in my heart all ever since whatever and and from that time on you're you're on like pins and needles around that person because you can't figure out what in the world you did in the first place and it changes it changes the relationship even though that's not what they intended so what we're talking about here are clear identifiable offenses actions i'm not saying that we shouldn't deal with the 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 uh, feelings the emotions in our heart we should we must 
Okay, But what we're talking about in terms of liable to the court, that's something that's verifiable by witnesses. All right. How is it that Yeshua considers being angry against one's neighbor or even casting verbal insults a punishable transgression before the earthly court? Anger is a sin of the heart, and until it bears outward actions of a punishable nature, no earthly court has the jurisdiction or ability to assess any penalties. Some suggest that Yeshua is simply using this language in a metaphoric sense, meaning that even though sins of the heart are not punishable in their early stages, they should be feared as though they were punishable by the court because allowed to remain, the possibility exists that overt punishable actions will result. So it's a little bit like the snake under the bed is what some are saying Yeshua did. You know, you know when the kids are little and the parents say, don't get out of bed because there's snakes under the bed? Well, there's not snakes under the bed. It's a lie. But... You know, some parents will do that to keep their kids from getting out of bed, right? So some are interpreting Yeshua as saying, well, he's telling you that if you get angry, the court's going to punish you, and hopefully that kind of uh, teaching will keep you from getting angry. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. Uh, thus, Yeshua emphasizes that all sin begins in the inner thoughts of a person, and it is here where the work of sanctification must be most carefully and diligently employed. That's the point. In other words, what he's saying is, if you allow anger to grow in your heart, it will bring forth sin that is punishable. You can count on it. You cannot live with anger and hide it. Eventually, it bears its fruit. Where does it bear its fruit first? In what you say, right? Your mouth, your lips are the first clear indication of anger. And uh, we, we discover this, for instance, in James 1, 13 through 16, where he says, don't say that when you... Are, are, are tempted, you're tempted of the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't tempt you to sin. No. Where does it begin? In your heart. First, it is, is conceived in your heart. And once the sin is conceived in your heart, it grows. And eventually, it brings forth these evil deeds which lead to death. That's, how, that's what James says. Okay. We find a similar emphasis in the rabbinic materials. Rabbi Eliezer said, He who hates his brother belongs to the shedders of blood. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like murder. Uh, we find this in Sifrei, which is the commentary in Deuteronomy. If a person has violated a minor religious requirement in the end, such a person will violate a major religious requirement. A Tana, that would be an early rabbi, recited before Rabbi Nachman ben Isaac, He who publicly shames his neighbor is as though he shed blood. And finally, all who descend into Gehenum subsequently reascend, except who do not reascend. And who are these? He who commits adultery, publicly shames his neighbor, fastens, should be an evil epithet upon, or a nickname upon his neighbor. In other words, says, you fool, you're a fool. This last quote is reminiscent of Yeshua's words in our text, that one who says to his neighbor, you fool, is guilty of hellfire. Literally, it is the Gehenna of fire. The evidence of inner anger is displayed by the calling of names. The first is Raka in the Greek, which is a transliteration of an Aramaic word, Reka, meaning empty-headed, good for nothing. could mean fool as well. This word is not uncommon in the rabbinic literature, though it is found only this one time in the apostolic scriptures. Interestingly, in the rabbinic literature, the word is most often found in the context of a teacher or sage berating someone of inferior status. That ever happened to you when you were in school? Teacher ever call you stupid? One example also shows the manner in which the offender is brought to judgment in the court of public appeal. Now, you have to understand something. Rabbi Eliezer is a huge rabbi in the, in the rabbinic world, in the early rabbinic world. And listen to this story. I thought this was so interesting, I 
put it in here for you. Once Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Shimon, was coming from Megdol Geder, from the house of his teacher. So, see, we, we know now, we immediately know that he is not the mature Rabbi Eliezer that we read in the Talmud. And other, not, this is, we get a glimpse of his life when he was still studying, when he was a young man. And he was riding leisurely on his ass by the riverside and was feeling happy and elated because he had studied much Torah. There chanced to meet him an exceedingly ugly man who greeted him. Peace be upon you, sir. He, however, did not return his salutation, but instead said to him, Raka, how ugly you are. Are all your fellow citizens as ugly as you are? The man replied, I, The man replied, I do not know, but go and tell the craftsman who made me how ugly is the vessel which you have made. When Rabbi Eliezer realized that he had done wrong, he dismounted from the ass and prostrated himself before the man and said to him, I submit myself to you, forgive me. The man replied, I will not forgive you until you go to the craftsman who made me and say to him, how ugly is the vessel which you have made. Rabbi Eliezer walked behind him until he reached his native city. When his fellow citizens came out to meet him, greeting him with the words, Peace be upon you, O teacher, O master. The man asked him, Whom are you addressing thus? They replied, The man who is walking behind you. Thereupon he exclaimed, If this man is a teacher, may there not be any more like him in Israel. The people then asked him, Why? He replied, Such and such a thing has he done to me. They said to him, Nevertheless, forgive him, for he is a man greatly learned in the Torah. The man replied, For your sakes I will forgive him, but only on the condition that he does not act in the same manner in the future. So after this, Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Shimon, entered the Beit HaMidrash, the house of study, and expounded thus, A man should always be gentle as the reed, and let him never be unyielding as the cedar. And for this reason the reed merited that of it should be made a pen for the writing of the Torah, for the scroll in the Tefillin and the scroll in the Mezuzot. So apparently Rabbi Ezra learned his lesson. But how did he learn it? In the court of public opinion, right? In the, in, in, in the court of, uh, of his community. So, earliest of, of those four uh, rabbinic quotes that you have? The earliest one would be uh, Sifrei, the second one down. From anger to verbalizing that someone is a good-for-nothing, Yeshua capstones his triad in verse 22 with whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fire of Gehenna. By the way, what is Gehenna? If you look at the side note on page 196, this is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew, Gehinom, which literally is Valley of the Sons of Hinom, and referred originally to the valley that runs north-south on the west side of Jerusalem and east-west on the south side curves around. Jeremiah 19, or Jeremiah in chapter 19, prophesied that this valley called Ben-Hinom would become known as the Valley of Slaughter, that is, the Valley of God's Judgment. This designation eventually took on a general, metaphoric, or typical meaning for God's final judgment, and the picture of fire was added. The reference to Gehenna is found seven times in Matthew, three times in Mark, once in Luke, and once in James. In Second Kings, and Jeremiah, we see that the valley of Hinnom was used for human sacrifice in idolatrous worship. In later times, the same location was used for burning Jerusalem's trash, and thus the constant fires gave a suitable metaphor for a place of God's judgment. Isn't that also where the water drained off of the temple? That was, it went the other way. That was Kidron. It went down to Kidron. Yeah. Wouldn't that smell? 
I know it's a different valley that we're talking. It about. depends. The Kidron Valley smell like. It depends how it depends how much water there was. You know, blood in water is really good for growing plants. And apparently there was lush, a lot of lush uh, uh, foliage in the Kidron Valley because of the uh, blood that was washed down off of the Temple Mount from the sacrifice. The Kidron Valley is that the one that's right outside the Jaffa Gate, or is that Gehenna? That's Gehenna, right? Right. Gehenna. Yeah. So what, when we when we read about the uh, the fire of Gehenna, which is usually translated in your English Bibles as hell, it, it is a local place, but it it became a picture. And a metaphor for God's judgment, and uh, it was the it was the garbage dump for the city, and they burned trash there continually, so it was constantly fire and constantly smoke. But um, it probably was also where refuse and, and sewage was dumped, so it was probably not a, it was definitely unclean. It was definitely not a place where you could go and then go up to the Temple Mount without having a mikvah and so forth. All right, so you'd be guilty of the fire. Now, um, here the fr I'm in the middle of page 197. Here the phrase, you fool, is one word in the Greek, more. Some take this as an adjectival form of the Greek word moros, which means foolish or stupid. Our English word moron is derived from this Greek word. If so, this could be interpreted as a Greek explanation of the previously translated, transliterated Aramaic raka. In other words, said, anyone who says raka, what I mean is, and then he gives them the Greek word. That some have suggested that way. But such an explanation disregards what seems to be a triad progressive in structure in which calling someone a more, a fool, is a more serious offense than the previous raka. Others have considered more like raka to be a transliteration of the Hebrew word more from the root mara to be recalcitrant or rebellious. It is also possible that the Greek word had become a common load word among the Jewish communities. We may have too little data to, to be certain which option best fits our context. Um, I... I this is just a thought that uh, was stuck in my mind when I was doing this some days ago. The word that's exactly the same spelling and everything for teacher is more. And it also means fool or rebellion, rebellious one. So, I mean, that that's kind of interesting. That's um, an interesting homonym. The point is being made that we use these words today in our common English uh, parlance, uh, you know, fool, moron, idiot, um, those kinds of things. We're all guilty of that. I are they words that should be struck from our vocabulary? No, not, not necessarily. But uh, I think we—I think that the words of our master give us pause to say we have to be careful when we say these, when we publicly defame somebody with these kinds of words. We have stepped over a line, and Yeshua would say, when we do that, uh, is this evidence of a bitterness and an anger in your heart? And if it is, then you had better take notice of that because the court on the earth may not be able to do anything, but the court in heaven, in heaven certainly can. And I think that's ultimately his point. Regardless of what this last term means, the word that's translated fool in our English, the overall meaning of our master's words is clear. Anger and the fruit of it, which is insult and slander must not be allowed to remain in the hearts or mouths of those who seek righteousness. If one is honestly concerned about the weighty commandments prohibiting murder, then one will be diligent to make sure the root from which murder springs, that is, growing anger, never is allowed to grow in one's heart. Moreover, since slander damages the reputation of another, and sometimes permanently, it is spoken of in the Tanakh as a kind of murder. Regularly the psalmist says that, that their feet are swift to shed blood, and he goes on to say, they have slandered me. 
He's not talking about that they're actually trying to assassinate him, though that in some cases was true. But what he's talking about is that slander is viewed in, in some cases in the Tanakh as though it is murder, and that's what Yeshua is saying here. I've known situations where uh, someone was slandered uh, who was uh, in, a, in a position of authority, and the, the, uh, the slander was absolutely groundless, absolutely groundless, but he never was able to live it down. I mean, he had to, essentially, he had to move into another, a whole other location in the, in the States in order to, uh, to be able to raise his family without that hanging over their head. And it was entirely uh, groundless. So the old thing that sticks and stones will break my bones and words will never hurt me is simply not true. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. The question still remains, however, how Yeshua could construe anger or its fruits of insulting words as a punishable crime in the earthly court. Some commentators simply consider his words to be hyperbole, arguing that by using the same phrase liable to the court or the Sanhedrin or fire of Gehenna, he is metaphorically saying that the sins of the heart and lips are equally grave or weighty as the sin of murder. Others seek to amend the text or find redactional layers which brought about the difficulty lacks one of the commentators, noting the difficulty, gives the following explanation. Anger, however, is not an offense at law. One who is overcome with anger toward another may be morally culpable, but he cannot be tried because of it by a human tribunal. He is answerable before a heavenly court and is judged by the laws of heaven, a rabbinic term for moral culpability for acts not covered by the laws of man. And this appears to be the meaning of liable to judgment. So what he's saying, and I think he's right, and i Tried to find some uh, good examples why. I think that the same phrase, liable to the court, now in the first verse when it says if you commit murder, you're liable to the court, we know that that's talking about an earthly court. But when it says liable to the court in the next verse, or liable to the Sanhedrin, or liable to the fire of Gehenna, is Yeshua transferring the court, not from not talking about an earthly court, but to a heavenly court? What earthly court could punish you in the fire of hell, Right? None. So, eventually, he is moving to the court of God. Now, the, the difficulty with this explanation is that the very same phrase, liable to the judgment of, or the court, is used in verse 21 of the murderer. And here it clearly means an earthly, not a heavenly court. Yet it is possible that Yeshua used the phrase in verse 21 of earthly judges and the same phrase in verse 22 of, of the heavenly court. For surely the final clause which casts the punishment into the sphere of divine judgment envisions a heavenly court. Moreover, on the basis of Exodus 21 and the use of Elohim to refer to the earthly judges. When it says in Exodus 21, if such and such occurs, you shall take the matter to the judges. If you look at the Hebrew, it says you shall take the matter to God, Elohim. But in the context, it's clearly the earthly judges. So since Elohim is used there, the move from earthly court to heavenly court is not so far-fetched. <clears throat> if one were to reverence the local courts and the higher court of the Sanhedrin, how much more should one reverence the highest court of all, the court of heaven? This theme is found in the rabbinic literature as well. 
And Antigonus of Soko received the Torah from Shimon the righteous. He would say, Do not be like servants who serve the master on condition of receiving a reward, but be like servants who serve the master not on condition of receiving a reward, and let the fear of heaven be upon you. Here's a story from uh, Babylonian Talmud Berchot. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai fell ill, his disciples went in to visit him. When he saw them, he began to weep. His disciples said to him, Lamp of Israel, pillar of the right hand, mighty hammer, wherefore weepest thou? He replied, If I were being taken today before a human king who is here today and tomorrow is in the grave, whose anger, if he is angry with me, does not last forever, who, if he imprisons me, does not imprison me forever, and who, if he puts me to death, does not put me to everlasting death, and whom I can persuade with words and bribe with money, even so I would weep. Now that I am being taken before the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, who lives and endures forever and ever, whose anger, if he is angry with me, is an everlasting anger, who, if he imprisons me, imprisons me forever, who, if he puts me to death, puts me to death forever, and whom I cannot persuade with words or bride with money. Nay, more, when there are two ways before me, one leading to paradise and the other to Gehinom, and I do not know by which I shall be taken, shall I not weep? They said to him, Master, bless us. He said to them, May it be God's will that the fear of heaven shall be upon you like the fear of flesh and blood. Now that's that's what caught my attention when I read that. May the fear of the heavenly court be on you just like you would fear an earthly court. His disciples said to him, Is that all? He said to them, If only you can attain this. Well, I know when we read that we think to ourselves, I mean, I was with, <clears throat> with, I've been with people when they passed away. Uh, Paulette was with my dad when he passed away. Uh, we can have hope and know. We can have assurance. We don't have to question which road we're going down. But at least we see his, uh, shall we say, his angst in the sense of saying, I'm, I'm now coming to meet the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Judge of all the earth. Here's another uh, a story from uh, Yoma, Babylonian Talmud Yoma. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, with gold, right? Rabbah said, any scholar whose inside is not like his outside is no scholar. That's how he, that's his little midrash on the, uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. Abai, or as some say, Rabbi Ben Ula said, he is called abominable, as it is said, how much less one that is abominable and impure man who drinketh iniquity like water, and quoting Job. Rabbi Shimon Ben Nachmani, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, what is the meaning of the scriptural statement, wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom, seeing he hath no understanding. That is, woe unto the enemies of the scholars who occupy themselves with Torah but have no fear of heaven. Rabbi Yanai proclaimed, Woe to him who has no court but makes a gateway for his court. Rabbi said to the sages, I beseech you, do not inherit a double Gehinom. Now what does that mean? In this last quote, to have no court means to disregard the court of heaven. Well, makes a gateway for his court means to establish one's own earthly court. Woe to the sage who makes his own earthly court and has no fear of the heavenly court. Here the sense of court is used to encompass both earthly and heavenly, and the saying moves easily between the two. We may postulate that Yeshua does the same thing in our text. Thus, while a murderer has a clear liability within the earthly court, the heart given over to anger, has an equally clear liability before the heavenly court, which should be regarded with even a greater fear and reverence. And I think that's Yeshua's point. All right, any uh, questions on those? We'll maybe take a couple of more verses.
All right, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. You know, in these two verses, there is more to be said about genuine worship than I think is often understood. This teaching of Yeshua is connected to and based upon the conclusion stated in the previous verse, namely, that one should govern his life with a full recognition that it is before the court of heaven that one ultimately lives. Yet it takes the conclusion one step further. In verse 22, the words are addressed to the person who is angry. You know, it says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. So the one being addressed is the one who is angry, right? Okay. Here the tables are turned, and the one addressed is the person who knows that a brother has a valid claim that needs to be resolved. In the previous verse, the anger has already been kindled. In these verses, the worshiper realizes that a situation exists that could make one's brother angry. Such a situation needs to be resolved in order to remove what might otherwise become a point of contention and thus breed anger. Once again, the ruling principle is love for one's brother. So here I am bringing, you know, and this obviously presupposes the temple standing, right? The priests are there. You bring your sacrifice uh, to the priest so that he can put it upon the altar. And you remember that you have an outstanding debt that you promised to pay and you didn't pay it. Now, you, you might say to yourself, you know what, ah, if, it's, if it's a few days late, no big deal. I'm here, I'm all ready, I'll follow through with what I'm doing here, then I'll go pay my debt. In the meantime, what could happen to your brother? What could he be doing with regard to the money you owe him or the debt you owe him? Well, he could be getting angry, right? So now you are doing something which causes your brother to go down that road that Yeshua just talked about. And that's more important than offering your gift at the altar, is to go take care of that. Why? Because the ruling principle is love for your brother. You don't do something that's going to cause your brother to give any cause for your brother to, to, to raise an anger against you. The scenario envisioned presumes the existence of the temple, as I said. Uh, no one could actually take their, their sacrifice put on the altar, right? We all know that. Only the priest could approach the altar. So you would bring your sacrifice give it to the priest, the priest would, would uh, uh, then put it upon the altar. And there remember that your brother has something against you. The giving of a sacrifice presupposes a repentant and submissive heart to God. It is incongruous then to know that something has been neglected in regard to one's brother, something that could well cause him to become angry and to disregard it as unimportant. Such disregard bespeaks a false piety that considers outward acts of worship, that is, presenting an offering, as detached from heart obedience to God's commandments. Once again, the court of heaven is to be reckoned with. For though the priest officiating at the altar could never know of such a conflict with one's brother, God knows. Right? And of course, the writer to the Hebrews makes a big point of this. Why do we need the, the, the Melchizedekian priest? Because he is able to clear one's conscience. The earthly priest couldn't do that. If the earthly priest could have read the hearts of people, he would have known which sacrifices to take and which not. But anyone, even a hypocrite, could bring a sacrifice to the, uh, to, to the temple and the priest was obligated to serve it. What does it mean to have something against another person? The only real parallel of this construction in the Septuagint, we're looking at Greek examples here, is Job 31.35. Oh, that I had a hearer, and if I had not feared the hand of the Lord, and as to the written charge which I had against anyone, I know I broke the sentence there, but I didn't want to keep going on in the context. What is it? So to have a written, he says, a written charge which I had against anyone, same uh, Greek terms. 
Here to have something against is in the form of written document, something within the realm of a legal claim. In the apostolic scriptures, the closest parallel to the language of our Matthew text is found in the repeated charge of Yeshua against the congregations in Revelation 2. Right? Remember these? Verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. In each of these examples, that which Yeshua holds against them, or has against them, is a clear evident sin. For Job, the language incorporates a legal document, while in the charges against the congregations by Yeshua... The issues involve spiritual unfaithfulness manifest in overt actions. We should presume that the same applies in our text. The person presenting his offering or his gift remembers that his brother has a legal claim against him or that in some tangible way he has sinned against his brother. You know, we, we, use, to, we use the phrase to have something against somebody in a much more broad sense in English, don't we? You know, what do you have against me? You know, because you're not talking to me. Or, what do you have against me because you haven't called for a long time? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a viable claim, perhaps a a debt that's owed or something like that. I'll give a couple of examples. By example, this could be that the worshiper has promised to repay a debt and has not yet done so, or has something in his possession that he could have rightfully returned to his owner, but has retained it for himself. You know, like you borrowed something from your neighbor, and you say, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back tomorrow morning. Okay, great. You don't bring it back, you forget, so forth. Next day you forget, next day you forget. Your neighbor calls up and said, hey, uh, I need that tool that I loaned to you. Could you bring it back to me? You say, yeah, okay, well, no problem. Uh, as soon as I get home from work, I'll do it. You forget. The next day is Shabbat, and you go to shul, and you're there ready to worship the Lord. And something comes in your mind. You promised, and you didn't fulfill it. And now that neighbor is at home, or wherever he may be, and he's stewing. He's saying, what kind of guy is that that borrows my tools and doesn't return them? And you're causing him to get angry. Well, if you have the ability, you should get up and go return that and come back and worship. That's, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that as a halakhic rule, but I'm saying that's an illustration of what might apply in our day, in our time. That's how careful we're supposed to be, right, with our, with our brother. The fact that the meaning of has something against you deals with legal verifiable issues may also be strengthened by the fact that the ensuing verses deal with settling matters with one's opponent on the way to court. The point is that Yeshua's command to leave one's offering and first be reconciled to one's brother involves a valid claim, not a mere difference of opinion or a wrongful claim. Surely there were those who opposed Yeshua and his disciples on theological and halakhic grounds. Such differences would not have prohibited them from engaging in acts of worship at the temple. In other words, if, you know, if, if uh, one of the uh, Talmudim, one of the disciples, is worshiping at the temple and he remembers that the Sadducee thinks he's crazy because he believes in the resurrection, he doesn't have to leave his offering and go try to persuade the Sadducee to believe in the resurrection before he continue on. Right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, there may be a lot of people who think that we're theologically errant for worshiping on Shabbat. So when it says, has something against you, it means, I think, uh, and I th- uh, most of the commentators agree with me, so I feel good about that. Uh, it, it means a legal claim. It means something that is, uh, that is a tangible uh, issue. It says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. It's the only time in the apostolic scriptures that this particular Greek verb is used to reconcile. It's found ten times in the Septuagint with various other meanings. It can mean to reconcile, but it can also mean to change, and it can even mean to die. 
in view of the fact that the claim is a legal one, that is, one which is, is valid, to reconcile with one's brother means to fulfill one's legal obligations to him. In the examples given, this would mean to pay the overdue debt or to return an item that belongs to him. Only after one has discharged his rightful obligations to his brother is he free to return and offer his gift at the altar. The point is clear and expounds upon the teaching of verse 22. The court of heaven knows the heart and is fully aware of what otherwise might be hidden to others. The valid claim against the worshiper by his brother must therefore be satisfied in accordance with the law as established by the earthly court before one's worship will be accepted by the court of heaven. There is ample application of these principles to our own lives in spite of the fact that the temple and sacrifices are no longer available. The overriding emphasis seems clear. One cannot expect that one's worship will be acceptable to God while one is unwilling to discharge his legal and brotherly obligations to those who are members of his community, and thus his fellow worshipers. This highlights the fact, well attested in the rabbinic literature as well, that one's heart intentions form an integral part of valid worship. We may note as an example this uh, from uh, the tractate Pesachim on Passover. You know, let me set this up for you. You're, you're in the middle of the week of uh, unleavened bread, okay? And what are you supposed to do during the week of unleavened bread? You're supposed to have all of the leaven out of your house. Not to be anywhere. You're, that's supposed to be all clean by now. It's supposed to be all gone. Okay. He who goes to slaughter his Passover lamb, to circumcise his son, or to eat the betrothal meal at his father-in-law's house, and remembers that he has left some leaven in his house, if he can go back and remove it, and go on to do his religious duty, let him go back and remove it. But if not, let him nullify it in his heart. In other words, say, I have nothing to do with that. I won't use that, so forth and so on. If he was going to help against an invasion or to save someone from drowning in a river, from thugs, from a fire, or from a suddenly collapsed house, in other words, where there are lives at stake, let him nullify it in his heart. In other words, don't go back and let the person drown, you know, help the person. If he was going to enjoy the festival rest on a pleasure jaunt, let him go back immediately and remove the leaven. So, similar kind of an idea, right? Leave your religious duty for the moment and go back and take care of what you should have taken care of. For transgressions done between man and the omnipresent, the day of atonement atones. For transgressions between man and man, the day of atonement atones only if the man will regain the goodwill of his friend. So here you have, even on the day of atonement, according to the rabbis, it's of no avail to you. If you think, well, on the day of atonement, everything will be right with my brother. If you haven't gone and made it right, it won't be. The day of atonement doesn't, has no effect. Uh, verse 25 and 26, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Now, they weren't using cents in that day, but that's, that's an English translation. The scenario drawn here seems to posit a similar yet different case. In the former verses, one who recognizes that his brother, meaning covenant member, has a valid claim against him, such as an unpaid debt, goes and pays the debt and the situation is resolved. Here, however, there exists a dispute which apparently can only be resolved in the court. However, the description is that of a Roman Greco court, not that of a Jewish court. How do we know? Well, first, in this case, there's a single judge. But as far as we can tell, a valid bait dean or a court among the Jewish communities of the first century consisted of a minimum of three judges. Secondly, the court proceedings that are pictured here have the judge handing the offender to the officer. In Luke's account, the parallel account, the word, it's a different word, proctor, 
which means bailiff or constable, or even one who is in charge of a debtor's prison. And no such person existed in a Jewish court. Thirdly, punishment by imprisonment was foreign to the Jewish courts of the first century and surely was not the penalty for death. Jewish communities had no debtor's prison. That was something Rome had. It was, however, common in the Roman Greco legal system. We should surmise then that the scenario here presented has to do with a legal claim by an outsider upon someone within the Jewish community. Indeed, the word translated opponent here can mean not only an opponent at law, but also an enemy. Same word. Moreover, the verb translated make friends, eunoeo, is used only here in the Apostolic Scriptures when he says make friends quickly. One commentator, Tobias Lax, suggests that an original Hebrew term, leshalem, might have been misunderstood by a Greek translator, for the word can mean to make peace, but also has a legal sense of pay in full. So they may have read that and said, oh, shalom, make peace, but there's a, there's a more subtle legal sense in that Hebrew word, which means pay in full. So it could say, pay in full quickly your opponent at law while you are on your way with him. You know, pay off, get the thing settled before you get into court. Regardless, the meaning is the same. If an outsider has a valid claim against you, pay the debt before you get to court because the judge may rule for additional damages, including prison time, especially if it's a Roman judge against a Jewish defendant. And if such is the case, the debt to the last cent will, will have to be paid before being released from debtor's prison. Here again, the point is that earthly courts have power to administer justice and in some cases to mete out punishments for criminal behavior. If this is so, how much more sovereignty and power does the court of heaven have? Therefore, as disciples of our Master Yeshua, we must live with the realization that we answer to the court of heaven, and if we live in this way, we will need never fear the earthly courts. Rabbi Yossi says, Let your fellow's money be as precious to you as your own. Now, you have to understand the rabbi way of listening. He doesn't mean that you want to get your you know, your friend's money. He means take care of your friend's money the same way you would take care of your own. And get yourself ready to learn Torah for it does not come as an inheritance to you. Right? And may everything you do be for the sake of heaven. So, uh, the rabbis had, you know, the rabbis are not devoid of this same message. They may not have lived it out. Some of them taught it. As we'll see in the next section, I think there was a clear dispute going on between uh, how we live our lives in obedience uh, to God and the intention of doing that and how we sometimes just polish the outside of the cup. Remember, Yeshua said of the Pharisees what? That they're very good at polishing the outside of the cup. I was talking to someone not long ago and uh, he said something uh, from his heart very openly and very very plainly, very clearly, and I understood exactly what he said. And it, he just... He said simply, I hate organized religion. Now, you know, as we talk more and more, uh, you know, I ask him to define organized religion. He, he, he doesn't hate religion that's organized. That, that's, that's not what he was talking about. He said, I hate organized religion because he has seen so much hypocrisy in the people who uh, just do religion and, uh, and how they treat each other and so forth and so on. So these are the, the very things that Yeshua is is driving home to us in, in this sermon. And they're, they're pretty sobering, aren't they? I mean, in the next, next week, we look at the one that says, if your eye offends you, you know, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand offends you or causes you to stumble, cut it off. I mean, those are, boy, those are politically incorrect words, uh, you know, 
And ho- you know, I hope you all know that he was not saying to maim yourself. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. But these are pretty significant uh, words for our times. Okay, any uh, comments, questions? Yeah. The question is, uh, what would be a response to a, a typically Christian church view of uh, verse 23, that before you take communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, whichever one you want, however you want to call it, um, you should get things right with your, you know, if there's anything between you and your brother, you should get it right. And uh, working backwards from 1 Corinthians 11 and other, uh, and other texts as, as the communion being... Well, first of all, let me say this. It's very clear that early on, as early as the mid-2nd century, and maybe slightly earlier than that, actually, uh, early 2nd century, the Eucharist was clearly taught by the church fathers as a substitute for the sacrifices in the temple. And that's why they named the officiate at the Eucharist the priest. And that's why they called the table upon which the elements uh, rested the altar. So, I mean, they made it, the language is very clear in the early church fathers that it was a sacrifice. So it's easy for them. It, there's a couple of things that, that you can see easily fall into that. To actually say that the bread becomes the body and the juice and the wine becomes the blood and that it is an actual sacrifice is just a step down the road in, the, in, a, in a Christianizing way. I'm not saying all Christians believe that, but that became a fairly uh, well-recognized understanding in, in the 2nd and 3rd century. Uh, and, and then to look at that as the sacrifice of the temple you can see it's an easy extension then to say, even in a Protestant uh, setting, that the communion is a sacrifice. I mean, it's, it, it is symbolic of that sacrifice and acts as a sacrifice. And so they, you could see how they would apply this verse 23. Uh, Leave your gift at the altar. Go reconcile with your brother, then come back. In other words, before you take communion, before you take the Lord's table, get things right with your brother. Well, uh, I, you know, I don't think it has anything to do with that per se, but I think it does have to do with worship. I think it's much broader than just communion. I think it has to do with presenting worship to God. And the idea is that Yeshua gives us this. Don't think that you can have in your heart something you know is amiss with your brother and come and and render acceptable worship to God. The court of heaven knows your heart. Okay? So get that taken care of first. And then you can come with a pure heart and a, and, a, and a submissive and obedient heart to the Lord and render your worship to Him. So I think that would be true uh, pretty much across the board. I mean, uh, I, I suppose everything could be viewed as worship in one sense, but I think here we're talking about corporate worship more more specifically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. The comments made that the longer you put it off, the worse it gets. The longer you put it off, the harder it is to do it. And... Uh, Again, it, it may not be, if we put it in the context of, of legal things, which it seems as though that's the context. Uh, if you know that you owe somebody 30 bucks and you've just been, re- you haven't paid it, it's not so hard to, unless you don't have the money. <laughs> it might be hard to humble yourself and go to the person and say, you know what? <laughs> I know I was supposed to pay you five days ago and I don't have the 30 bucks. Okay. But, um, you know, it, it's if you have the money and you've just forgotten about it, that's not such a difficult thing. It is more difficult when you know that your brother... It's What's even more difficult, I think, is when you know that your brother has... Uh, uh, when you're, And here's a question. I mean, we could talk ad infinitum about this. 
What do you do when your brother claims to have a valid claim against you and you say it's not valid? Or in other words, he says, uh, you know, you, uh, well, let, let's do a scenario here. Let's say, for instance, you sell somebody a computer, a used computer. And you say, okay, well, here's, you know, here's the computer. I have two. I don't need this one. I want to sell it. Fine. Okay. I, I give it to you, whatever. And when the person gets it, they say, they come back to you and say, you know, that isn't everything that I thought it was going to be. You know, it's, uh, it's not as fast as I thought it would be. It doesn't quite work the way I thought it should work. And you'd say to him, well, I told you exactly this is, this was the specification, so forth and so on. He says, well, you know, I'm not happy with it. So I'd like my money back. You say, well, I don't think that's going to work because I've already spent the money on something else. I don't have the money to give back to you. And from your vantage point, it was a valid sale. It was done in integrity and honesty. From the other person's point of view, you slipped him, you know, a wooden, wooden nickel, so to speak. Now, what do you do with that? This person believes he has a valid claim against you. You have not been fully honest with regard to this deal. That's what he's thinking. And you're saying, no. Well, you know, that's where you have to try to get together and get it settled. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think this verse is talking about where you know for certain that he has a valid claim and you failed to follow through on a promise or a payment or something like that. That's what I think. And I'm afraid that it is not oftentimes understood that way. It's understood that, well, I'm not sure if... I think I think this person this person hasn't talked to me for three weeks, so maybe they're mad at me. I better go and find. I mean, it's it's it could be that, all right. If you sense that there's something that you need to talk through, but uh, I think this is talking far more about uh, verifiable, clear uh, situation where both parties know what should be done and one party hasn't followed through. That's what I think. Now, in terms of the other side of it. Where, you're, where somebody has offended you or hurt you or sinned against you or whatever, um, that, can, that can also be an obstacle to your worship and an obstacle to your uh, obedience to God. And there, there's no reason, there's no valid reason ever to retain uh, bitterness and anger. God tells us to forgive, and that we must do. And so if we allow bitterness to grow in our heart, it does, it does produce the same fruit as anger, right? Bitter, bitterness and anger go together. It does produce the same fruit. So these are these are good solid words for us to to have to take to heart, and and uh, we dare not just brush them aside as well. The bar is set so high, I don't think I could ever attain that. Well, we can attain it. God has given it to us to do, and we uh, and we trust Him to give us the ability to do it. So you know, here we are in a society that um, is full of anger and full of uh, um, well. The next section is an adultery. Uh, we're in a society that is very much heading towards the Sodom and Gomorrah if it's not already there. Okay, So, uh, in some ways, we do have an uphill incline to tread. Uh, but God has said He would be faithful to us and that He would give us the ability to walk in His ways. So we must trust Him to do that. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.